Father, this is your word. It is our authority over us. It is the one that we come to and we say we must submit, whether we like it or not, to what it calls us to. And so I pray for all of us where we're at today with all of our struggles as we all come in as sinners, weak and wounded, sick and sore, uh, ruined by this fall, that we would listen to you and hear what you would say to us. And God, may we glorify you in our listening and our hearing and our applying and living out what this word says. So God, speak to us now, and we have great confidence that you will because your word is your very word that we can say that it is from you and it is living and active. I pray that you just do work in our hearts this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we look back on, on 1 Corinthians 12, what we've kind of seen from Paul is he's laid out this, this huge uh, amount of information about spiritual gifts. And he, he says, and starting in, in verse 1 of chapter 12, this is concerning spiritual gifts. He's, he's starting to, to deal with this problem that was going on within this Corinthian church. And so, in a sense, what Paul has done is he started out this humongous topic, is he's kind of given them the menu. He's given them all the, here's what's available to you. Here's the food that, that could be set before you. Then he's explained in detail a little bit of, of here's what it's going to be like. Here's what this is going to look like. Here's what this is going to look like. There's, a, there's kind of a, a banquet before you. And now kind of at the very end, what I think he wants to do is just kind of put it into him. Like, no, this is now for you to eat. This is for you to, to kind of consume yourselves. And this is how he starts with, with this last portion of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And through this, this, this chapter, Paul has been growing them, I think, hoping that they would desire this diversity within their body, this diversity within their unity. There, there are many members, and yet they're one body. And there's many gifts, and yet there's one spirit. And so he's, he's growing this desire for diversity and unity. But what he also says that they should work for, and what he's kind of moving toward in chapter 13 and 14, is this common good, this building up of the body. And so Paul is working for these Corinthians to, to desire the common good. And what he wants to happen is this desire for the common good, this desire for the building up of the body, to kind of coincide with this desire for many different gifts, many different ministries, many different roles, and many different functions. And so he says these desires and kind of puts them before there. These gifts are given for the common good that they may be built up. And then at the end here, we're going to talk about some higher gifts that they are to earnestly desire. This diverse amount of gifts for the common good. So I think that there, if there's this desire from the Corinthians or from our church, this desire for the common good, that the body of Christ might be built up, that Jesus might be exalted, then there ought to be this desire for a variety of ministries, a variety of gifts, a variety of roles, and a variety of functions. And so to set this in place, to set this desire within them, to kind of help them to, to take it for themselves, he reminds them again of who they are. If you look in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 12, he says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now he's said this over and over in chapter 12, but now he's kind of putting it to them. This is who you are. Then this who they are has huge implications for how they're going to act how they're going to think, how they should behave themselves within this corporate gathering, how they should use spiritual gifts. It has huge implications for even what they desire and what they should desire. This is who you are. You are the body of Christ and individually you are members of it. 
Now, I think it's interesting. He's talking to, to Corinth here, the church that's in Corinth. He's not talking to the church that's in Athens or Antioch, and there's churches there too. But he says of this church in Corinth, you are the body of Christ. Not just a body, not just part of the body. You are the body of Christ because every true church where the, the gospel is rightly preached and the commands from Jesus are rightly followed. Every true church, every local body, every local assembly is the body of Christ. And it's actually, when we're talking about the church universal, which is all saints everywhere of all time, the only exemplification or manifestation of that that larger body called the universal church is the local church, is the body, the local assembly, what we call here sojourn. And so the universal church all Christians at all time is only seen in this place. And so he calls them, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So where there's the people of God, it's the people of God. It's not just a part of the people of God. No, you are the people of God. And he's not just a part of the body. You are the body. And if this is who they are, then what does that mean for them? What does it mean for them when they come together? What does it mean in terms of their practicalities, in terms of their spiritual gifts and their outworkings? What does it mean for them when they, they join together in song? What does it mean together when they join together for teaching? Well, I think that, that all those things could have tons of things said about them. But one thing that it clearly means is that if you are the body of Christ, then the church, the body, the local assembly belongs to Jesus. It is his body. He's the one who's identified with it, not the other way around. It's not like we're just trying to tag our names onto Jesus and, and do what he does. No, he's the one who came after us, bought us. We belong to him. He's attaching us to himself, so we are under his authority. Our head pastor ought to be Jesus Christ. This ought to be the same for every true church everywhere. He's the head. He is the head of the church, this body that he is associating with. And every member has this unique identity because of that. You're part of the body of Christ. And if that's true, then how you treat one another ought to be different, as he says in 1 Corinthians 12. Each one ought to rejoice with one another. You ought to suffer together. You're taking care for one another. You're, you're, you're having this mutual concern for one another because, not, you, not because you belong to yourself, but because you belong to another. You belong to Jesus. You're part of this body. It also means that all these services and all these gifts and all these functions and all these roles that he's talked about in 1 Corinthians 12, all of them ought to be for this one purpose, that the head of this body, that Jesus Christ be exalted, that his name be praised, that he be brought fame. And so another way of saying that is to say that all gifts, every gift is to be used for the building up of this body, for the exaltation of Jesus and for the working of the health of every other part of the body. So that's kind of the, the twofold mission of the church. It involves evangelism, going out so that Jesus' name might be proclaimed and that he might be brought glory and honor that he deserves from every single tongue that's ever existed. But it also includes this kind of inner working where you're working for the formation of other believers into the likeness of Christ Jesus. So there's these two things going on here. There's this edification of the church and evangelism in the world, working together all that Christ might be exalted. And this, this is the building up that he's talking about. This is the common good that he wants. And so all services, all service that you'd give to the church or to Christ, all gifts that you might have, all functions or roles that you might play are all to be working for that main goal, that Jesus, the head, might be exalted in all things. And if that's really the goal, if that's what we want, then we know that takes diverse parts, many different members. It doesn't take one person doing one function and everybody else following in that function. If we want the body, if we want Christ to be exalted, 
we should have this desire for a lot of people with a lot of gifts that can all bring Jesus honor. So this ought to be the desire. You think about your physical body. If you desire for your body to be physically healthy, then it's not good to just have one food. You're going to need a variety of things. You're going to need protein and vegetables and fruit. You're going to need all those things working together so that your body might be healthy, so that your body might be built up and strong. And so as as believers, as the body of Christ here at Sojourn, we're not just a body, we are the body. And what we should be doing is belonging to Jesus, knowing that he is our authority, that he is our head pastor, that he is the one that we, we listen to and submit to, that he is our head. So when we think about where do we want to go? Or what do we want to be as a church? Or what do we want to do? What's, what's next for us? All those things ought to be couched under this authority of Jesus. Like, well, where does he want us to go? What does he want us to do? How would he have us work and minister in this world? And so we look to the scripture. He's made it known. This is what my church is to be about. So we look to the Bible and we open it and we read it and we study it and we look at it constantly because we want to know what our head pastor thinks that we, his body, should do. Being the body means that we're working together that Christ might be exalted. And every single believer, I think this is clear from 1 Corinthians 12, every believer can exalt Jesus using their gifts. They can work for the common good of the body. They can bring Jesus the fame that he deserves. But they've all got to be working out. And so if we, if we truly desire to be the body of Christ, to exalt our head who is Jesus, then we should desire these, these different gifts Lots of gifts, a variety of gifts, a diverse amount of people from a diverse amount of places that Jesus might be brought glory. We should desire it. We should welcome it. And this is what Paul is going to move into. He's moving into telling them not just who they are, but here's what God has done in your midst. Here's what he's gifted you with. If you look in verse 28, it says, And God has appointed in the church. Now, before we kind of move on, let's remind ourselves that this is God's doing. We look in verse 18 of chapter 12, and he says kind of the same thing. We talked about this last week as well. This is the body that God arranged. In verse 24, he says, God composed this body. God is the one who's appointing these things. So before we even talk about gifts and these offices, let's remember that God is the one who's providentially working all these things out. He's the one who's putting this body together. He's the one who's composed it, arranged it, and is working these things out. And he does these things so that he might be brought glory. He equips the church with what it needs so that he might be honored and glorified. So it's not as if we're on a mission that we're going to fail at. We will succeed, but in the strength that God provides. And so how has God set up the church? What has he gifted? What has he done? And this is where we read it, going on in verse 28. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and then we're going to move on to the rest. So he's set up these, these kind of three at the beginning. There's apostles, prophets, and teachers. Now, it's interesting because it's, it's a little bit difficult to discern here, but it doesn't seem like these are spiritual gifts. He's been talking about spiritual gifts all along the way, but these don't seem to be specific spiritual gifts. They seem to be more offices, ministries of the church that are fulfilled by, by certain people, and surely those gifts kind of coincide with these, but these are kind of ministries of the church. And so let's look at these three ministries. First, he says he gave them the apostles. Now, the apostles were this specific group of, of Jesus' disciples. They were called by Jesus. They were appointed by Jesus. They were witnesses to the resurrection. And they were sent out for this foundational ministry in the church. 
They were to carry this out, this foundational ministry, foundational teaching for the church. And so they were appointed to establish right teaching, right doctrine in the early church. They didn't have Bibles of the full New Testament like we have now, so they needed people to establish right doctrine, right teaching, working out all that everything means in light of Jesus, in light of his life, death, and resurrection. And so, as believers, we can know that all that we need to know for salvation and for sanctification has been passed down through these apostles. We have all that we need. It's written down for us in the Scripture. All that we need for salvation and sanctification is provided for us. We don't need to go looking for more revelation. God has given us what we need, and it's come through these, this gift of these apostles, this foundational ministry that the apostles have done. They gave us authoritative teaching found in the scripture. Now there may be roles of the apostles that are still ongoing. If we think about pioneer work on on the edges of places where there has been no gospel witness ever, that's kind of an apostolic work, but they're not apostles that are going to those places. They might be pioneers in fulfilling certain roles, but they're not apostles bringing authoritative inspired teaching from God unless they're just reading the Bible. And they're still not apostles. They're just building on the apostles' teaching. And so I think there's good reason to think over and over again in Scripture that the role of the apostles might be ongoing in some ways, but this office and this, this title as the apostle is done. Now, I say that for a number of reasons, one of which James dies in, in the book of Acts and no one replaces him. Now, remember when Judas dies, they replaced him. When the other apostles start falling in Acts, they're not replaced. So that's one reason, but I think another one would be Ephesians 2.20. And it says the household of God was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So this is a foundation that the apostles laid and that the church is being built upon this and Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. And so we might be carrying on something that the apostles have laid, but we're, we're building off of what they have done. To go outside of that is really to go outside of Scripture because that's what they have laid down for us. And that would be a scary place for any church to be. But that takes us to the next one. It was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which brings us to the next ministry that was listed, and that being the prophets. This is the the one that's going to receive a lot of attention in chapter 14. So not everything that can be said is going to be said right now about prophets. But there are some who, who regularly functioned with this office who regularly functioned in this role as a prophet, and, and surely along with the gift of prophecy. Now, prophets, what they would do is they would take divine revelation, and they would communicate it to the people, and they would apply it to their lives. You see this all through Scripture, but even in the New Testament as well, these prophets would have this divine revelation, and they would apply it to certain situations. Once again, more to be said about that in chapter 14, but for now, I think that's where we need to go. Now, remember, once again, that as God is giving these things, there's, there's no canon of Scripture yet. There's no New Testament. There's no Old Testament bound up in everybody's hands at that time. And so you can see how a foundational role for both apostles, which were few in number, and even some more than that that might have some divine revelation would be helpful for the foundation of the church. They didn't have Bibles that they could turn to at that time. And so this is a foundational ministry. And the third he gives is, is teachers. There were, there were people who regularly functioned in what, this is probably the most familiar to all of us, in this, this way of teaching. This was a, a very regular, regular thing within the ministry of the church. Now, it's likely, once again, that they're, they're ministering with also the gift of teaching, but that's not exactly what he's saying here. And so there would be these mature Christians who would instruct others in the Christian faith and instruct them in a way that they could be understood. 
So they're, they're, they're decent at what they do. They're taking material, they're taking the gospel, they're taking everything in light of who Jesus is, and they're applying it and, and helping people understand it. doesn't mean they're giving simple teaching, but they're giving understandable teaching. So there's teachers. Now, if you look through, through 1 Corinthians 12, and if you've been kind of going with us through this whole thing, Paul has been arguing, arguing pretty consistently over chapter 12 about not lifting up one gift over another about not lifting up one member of the body over another part of the body. He even says those that you dishonor, you should give more honor to. And so he's been arguing this pretty well throughout chapter 12. And yet here in chapter tw- in verse 28, he says, first he gave this, second he gave this, and third he gave this. And so what gives here? Like, what is he trying to say when he says first, second, and third? Now, there's, there's probably some debate here that goes a lot of different ways, but I think that there's, there's likely, there's this possibility that it's some sequential order. Like, so he gave apostles as this foundational ministry, then he gave apostles and then teachers. That's, I think that's a portion of it, but I don't think that's all that Paul is doing. You see, I think that Paul is nuancing kind of what he's been saying in chapter 12 so far. So Paul thinks, according to kind of this list, that there are some roles, that there are some functions that are more important for the functioning of the body. They're more important for the building up of the body. I think he's going to make this argument again in chapter 14. But if you just think about our, our physical bodies, if you just said, we need vegetables and that takes the precedent, sure. Yeah, we need more vegetables than we need dairy, right? I mean, it would be good for you to eat more vegetables than, than some other things that you could eat. But that doesn't mean that other things are, are not important. It just might mean there's, there's a little bit of a precedence for, for more vegetables within your body than, say, dairy or meat or something else like that. There's this precedence that's there. doesn't make other things not important or less important, but some take a little bit of precedent. And I think that Paul is getting at there are some roles, there are some functions, and even some gifts, as he'll talk about in chapter 14, that aren't more important in position aren't necessarily more important in status, but they're more important and, and more important in effectiveness and in function within the body. Some gifts, some roles, some ministries are more valuable for the edification of the body, for the building up, for the common good. So there's a difference in the sense of utility in the body. There's a difference in the sense of how these gifts apply for the common good of the body. Not that there's one gift that's first in status versus 17th in status, or that one person is more important versus someone who's less important, but some have a functionally more important role to build up the body. And so what ministries and gifts are more effective for this church, more effective in edification? I think he lists them here. First, second, and third. And what are all these things, apostles, prophets, and teachers, what is, what is the role that all those have in common? What's the function that all of them have in common for the church? I think this is clear. This is from the proclamation of the word of God. This is, all these roles are proclamation of the word. And verse 28 is kind of close to Ephesians 4.11, where it says that he gave, this being God, Christ himself gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. Same image even used there. This body needs to be built up. And he gave certain roles and functions for that to happen. 
And so he gave these roles, specifically apostles and prophets and teachers, all offices, all roles and functions of the proclamation of the word of God, all being this foundational teaching on who Christ is and what it means that he has lived, died, and raised, and how that works out for our lives as believers. And so I think this is what Paul is getting at. This ministry of proclamation of the word is essential to building up of the body. Now, if you were in a war and your country was fighting against another country and you were working out some strategies for how to take out the other nation, how to take out the enemy, there's a few different tactics that you could take that probably you should always take. One of those being if you cut off all supply, if you just cut off their supplies, then you will be in good shape because eventually they will just run out of supplies and they will not be able to fight anymore, right? So how you could cut off their supply completely, you could bomb factories, you could keep them from manufacturing stuff, or you could cut off any sort of fuel lines. And so if they have trains or if they have a, a particular place where they need to get fuel over and over again, if you took that out, that would pretty well strangle the enemy and their, their position would be significantly weakened and eventually they would die. So you could just cut off their supply lines, kill their manufacturing or kill their fuel so they can't get it to the, the troops and, and it's over. Right? You will win eventually if that happens. Cut off those things and you will win. Well, the word of God and this proclamation of the word is not only what forms us as the people of God. It is what makes us as the people of God, but it also fuels us as the people of God. So faith is said to come by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, hearing by the word of God. And this is so clear. God, in the beginning, he created all things by his word, but he also recreates things by his word as well. If you look in Acts, it's just this amazing story of God's word going crazy throughout people's lives and recreating people all over. If you see Acts 2, Peter preaches, they hear the word of God and they believe, and it says they were cut to the heart. They heard the gospel and they were cut to the heart. If you look in Acts chapter 4, they heard the word of God and believed and were sharing things in common, and many were coming to the faith. If you look in Acts chapter 9, Saul is on the road to Damascus, and he hears the very word of Christ, and he is changed, and he believes in Jesus. If you look in Acts chapter 10, Peter is speaking to some Gentiles. He explains to them the gospel, and they receive the Spirit. This is the word of God recreating. This is the word of God making new creations. It's making them new. And so look, if you look on from Acts from there, I mean, I could give you example after example of these people going with the word of God, proclaiming the gospel, and people being transformed by it. Paul in Corinth is a great example. Acts 18.5 says, what, this is Paul's ministry in Corinth. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. If you look in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, Crispus believed in the Lord with his entire household, and many Corinthians, hearing Paul preaching the word of God, believed. Acts chapter 18, verse 11, said Paul stayed in Corinth a year and six months, and what is he doing there? He's teaching the word of God among them. This is how the Corinthian church came to be. Paul preached the word of God. They were transformed by it. This is what forms us as the people of God. We didn't just come on our own. The word of God came. We heard and believed in faith. This is what forms the people of God. All through Acts, the word of God is spreading and prevailing is what it says. The word is spreading. The word is prevailing. It's recreating. 
but it also forms us into the image of Christ because it doesn't just set us out there and say, you're a new creation, good luck with that and how that's all going to turn out. No, it's forming us, it's molding us into what we need to be. And so it's molding us into, the scripture says, into the image of Christ, into his likeness. So we see in 2 Timothy 3.16 that this is what the word is for. It's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God might be built up, might be competent, equipped for every good work. And I could go on and on with the forming of the people of God by the word of God. But the way the body is equipped, the way the body is built up, it's taught, it's reproved, corrected, and trained is not just through someone who's coming up here and coming up with their own opinion. It's through the word of God being taught rightly to the people. This is how they are formed into the image of God. So the word forms us and it also fuels us. It's forming us and then it's recreating us. It's forming us and it's making the likeness of Christ, but it's also fueling us. It's giving us what we need to continue to move forward. So the word is what sustains us, is what feeds us, is what grows us, is what matures us. And so you can see, like as I'm stressing this point, that it's absolutely central to the church that the proclamation of the word go forth. It's essential to the church. If the church is going to survive, the proclamation of the word has to be central. If the church is going to be healthy, if this body is going to be healthy, not have disease running through it, the word of God must be central. It's what forms us. It's what fuels us. A clear way to get the body to stop growing is to stop feeding it. If you want the body to shrink, if you want the body to be malnourished, it's, it's, it's really simple. Don't feed it. Don't give it any food, and it will starve, and it will eventually die. And the Word of God is, is more than bread to us. We, we live on the words of God. We have to have the Word of God proclaimed. We have to have it proclaimed into our lives. We need this Word of God. It's not just physically that we would starve and die if we don't have food. Spiritually as well. It will kill us. It will cripple a church. I was listening to John tell the story of Sojourn in the early days just a few weeks ago. And one of the things that he said was that when we were first meeting together, we didn't know exactly what was going to happen. They didn't have the idea initially to like, these families that are together, we're going to be a church. But what they did know is that they needed the word of God. And so that was something that they implemented right away, is that as we get together, let's get into the word together, because we need this. And so sojourn is gone from there on out. We are not going away from the word of God because it's essential for the health of the body. We cannot turn away from it. A sure way to cripple your health and growth as a believer is to ignore and put away the word of God. It's to not come to the proclamation of the word that we have on Sunday, to not listen to it being sung, to not listen to it being prayed, to not listen to it being preached and taught, to not go to a group where you could discuss and dig down deeper into those things. That's a sure way to know that you probably are not going to grow as a believer. So God, he's, he's given us these things. He said, first, the apostles, second, the prophets, and third, teachers. The list here shows that there's a sense of priority over, of Scripture over experience. And I think that's pretty harsh for the Corinthians to hear. But it's so clear from Paul is that he is coming teaching the Word of God. He didn't come giving them a personal experience. He wants them to know. He wants them to be informed. So he comes and he teaches. So he prioritizes Scripture over experience, not only in his personal ministry, but this is what he's asking the church to do as well. We're prioritizing, and this will be more clear in chapter 14, Scripture, the Word of God, and the proclamation of the Word over other things. If the Word is central, what does it say to us? What do we do? Well, it reminds us of all the things that we need. It reminds us of our identity. It reminds us if we're, that we are disciples. It reminds us that we are continuing to learn 
You know, to be a believer in Jesus is to be what we call a disciple, to walk like Jesus walked. And to do that, we have to learn what did Jesus do? What does he want us to do? We learn from him, and this is always attached to the word of God. And so we need to be people who are constantly learning, knowing that we're never attaining where, where we should be with, with Christ. We're not there yet. We need more. We need more proclamation of the word. We need to hear it. We need to live it in community so that we can grow into Christ-likeness. And so we always need to be to, attached to a body, whether it's here or somewhere else, where the word of God is central, where the proclamation of this word is something that is essential to that body and can never be done away with. And we need to pursue it personally. Think about these believers at this time. They needed people to come to them and tell them the word of God because they didn't have a Bible in their home. They couldn't just go to the scripture and say, what did Jesus say about divorce? What did Jesus say about loving your neighbor? It wasn't written down for every single person at that time. Here we all have Bibles sitting on our shelves collecting dust. We need this word. So we need to shake off the dust and start living it, start reading it, start studying it, and putting ourselves in a place where we can do the same thing. It's essential to our lives. But God hasn't just done this. He hasn't just given these apostles and prophets and teachers. And likely when you read through this passage, you're looking at those next few that he's talking about and say, what's he going to say about that? So Paul's list continues. Verse 28 says, then, then gifts, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongue. Paul drops the order. He doesn't say first, second, third anymore, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, on. No, he starts saying then. So he's making this clear separation. And it's as if these, these next ones that he's listing are no particular order. They're just thrown out there. Then this, then this, then that. So he's dropping the order and he's just listing a variety of gifts. And I think no particular order. And there's this variety, there's this diversity that's, that's working, hopefully, for the common good. And he follows this by saying in 29, Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And so the implied answer to all these things is no. And that's a good thing. No, all don't have gifts of healing. No, all don't have miracles. That seems like the life for us, right? If everybody had healing and everybody had miracles, that's what would be good for the body. And Paul says, no, all don't have that. And I think that that's a really good thing. What he's answering in these questions, what he's answering is not may all do these things. Not may all have these gifts of healing or may all speak in tongues or may all do these other things, but he's saying do all. And the answer is a clear no. All do not do this. But if there's the desire for the common good and the building up of the body, then there ought to be this desire along with it to have this variety, to have all these things working so that Christ might be built up, so that we might have maturity, so that we might have the exaltation of Jesus within this body. See, the Corinthians had a problem. And it's going to get more evident in chapter 14. But one of their problems is, is they're holding one gift up as the standard. They're holding one gift up as, as the thing that makes you spiritual, as the thing that makes you mature, as the thing that really displays the Spirit. And Paul's saying, no, all don't have that one thing. That's not the only thing that is a manifestation and a display of God's power and working and Spirit. Paul points out, not everyone fills the same role. Not everyone has the same gift. Not everyone has the same ministry. And so there should be no expectation that that would happen. No expectation that everyone has the same gift. No expectation that everyone has the exact same role. No expectation that everyone's working the exact same ministry. And so once again, although you'd probably want more from me at this moment, we're pushing that to chapter 14. 
And we're just saying that Paul is pointing out that there's goodness in this diversity, that there's a lot of gifts. Not everyone has the same one. But the church as a whole, these gifts are, are given for the common good. This is what they should desire. And so we're left with, what do we, what do, we do with this? We have this, these offices, this list, and, and I'm telling you, like, I'm not really telling you exactly what all these gifts are doing or how they're working yet. Like, I'm kind of pushing it off. So what do we do with this? Like, what are we to apply here? What do we, what do we need to do with this list that Paul gives and how he ends chapter 12? He's told them who they are. You're the body of Christ. He's told them what God has given them, what God has done. He's given you apostles and prophets and teachers and a lot of gifts. So what are we to do with this? And I think he gives us a huge answer in verse 31. He says to them, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, I've mentioned there's been a problem in Corinth. They've listed one gift as kind of the the gift. This is the one that shows what's spiritual. This is the one that shows what's mature. They had a problem, we'll see this more clearly once again in chapter 14, of stressing the importance of a lower gift, of pushing for a gift that doesn't functionally work more for the edification of the body of Christ. Their problem was, and I think this is clear, is tongues. That they had this problem of, of listing tongues, of thinking tongues as the premier gift. That this is what the people of God do. This is a display of the Spirit. This is how we'll carry out our mission. This is how we'll build people up. It's with tongues. And so you'll notice in chapter 12, Paul always puts it at the bottom. Now, he doesn't have a list in every single one where it's ordered. I don't think he's doing that, but it's clear that he's de-emphasizing that one. I don't think he's saying this is last of all importance, but he is kind of de-emphasizing it to them. He always puts it last in chapter 12. It's the last one listed in both lists that he gives. And so he does have some things. He does have some gifts that he considers higher gifts in terms of how they edify and how they encourage the body. Doesn't that seem to kind of work against what he's been saying so far? Then he say like, hey, every gift is needed. No, I don't think it's working against it. I'm just saying there's more that can be done functionally for the edification of the body with certain gifts. And so this is the gifts that they are to desire because they're better for the common good. These are the gifts that they're to go after so that they can build up the body because that's their desire. That's what he wants for them. Desire this common good of the body. Desire that the body might be built up. And in, in, in coinciding with that, ought to be this desire for the gift that will help you do that the best. However I can build up the common good, that's what I want to do. And that means this gift or this gift, that's what I want. And this is not where the Corinthians are. They want one gift because they think it displays something or makes, it, makes them in certain status. Paul's saying no. So are there higher and lower gifts? Well, I think in certain ways, yes, we can say there are higher and lower gifts. And so he says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. And he'll say more about this in chapter 14 as well. But I also think that there's an important piece to this earnestly desiring the higher gifts that he gives us in verse 31, if you look in the end, and I think this is essential to understanding this, earnestly desiring the higher gifts. He says, and I will show you still a more excellent way. Now, I'm going to stop there, but I mean, I think you know what's coming in 1 Corinthians 13. It's the famous love chapter. I think Paul is he's giving them a great hint of the way that he's getting ready to show them at the end. And so even as he talks about these, these higher gifts and these lists of offices, all that he's doing, he stops himself. And he kind of interrupts the topic. Have you noticed that? If you've read chapters 12 through 14, it almost seems like there's this interruption in the middle of it for this chapter 13, for this love chapter. He's interrupting the topic of this variety of gifts of all that's going on. And it's not a real interruption. It really works together well. But he wants to make clear to them that 
that desiring the higher gifts ought to come with a certain framework. That desiring these higher gifts ought to come with a certain attitude, ought to come with a certain way. And there's certain ways these gifts are to function. And there's certain ways that we can exercise our desires for higher gifts. And that way is this more excellent way that Paul is going to read to speak of, and that's the way of love. The way of love. And I love what one commentator said when he said that no gift is worth anything, however, if its use is not motivated by love. Paul is beginning to trigger that in their minds. That even as he lists these gifts, and even as he lists these offices, he's saying there's a better way, and they all ought to be motivated by love. This is the the way of the higher gifts. This is the way to earnestly desire them, is this loving desire for them. I want to build up the body. I want to do this in love, and so I'll desire the gifts that will most do that. This is the way that we are to practice these gifts, in love for one another, in love for God. This is the way that we are to conduct our entire lives as believers, this way of love. This is the excellent way, and this is the way that applies as well to earnestly desiring these higher gifts. And so before explaining more about what these higher gifts are, as he will in chapter 14, he wants to make sure that we have this essential framework in place before that. And so in pursuit of loving one another, he wants them to desire these higher gifts. In pursuit of their love for God, in pursuit of their love for building up the body, he wants them to earnestly desire the higher gifts. Healing, helping, administration, tongues, all of those things are ways that we can love one another. But we should simply seek to do it out of love. All that we've been given, the Spirit gives, we should do out of love. And so we take whatever gift we have, whatever role we have, whatever position we're placed in, and we work it out in love toward God and toward others. And so what we do is we take our gift and we exercise it faithfully. We take any of the gifts we have and we exercise it the best that we know how to the fullness of our ability, all for the common good because we love. Because we love God, because we love his people, because we want this building up of the body, because we want this body to be matured in Christ Jesus. I think Paul, Peter rather, says something similar in 1 Peter chapter 4. In verse 10, he says this, And as each one has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength their God supplies in order that in everything, this is the goal, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Whatever you have, you're using it and spending it all that Christ might be honored, that the body might be built up because you love one another. If we truly are seeking the common good, if we truly want the building up of the body of Jesus Christ, then we're going to desire anything that will help us do that, anything that will help us love, anything that will help us exalt Jesus, anything that will help us build other people up. If I can have anything that will help me accomplish that, that's what I want. If I earnestly desire these higher gifts because I love one another, that's what we're going after, spending everything that the body might be built up. I think in the book of Mark, Jesus is watching the people come to the temple and put their offerings in the the box. He sees some people that bring a significant sum of money and put them in there, but he also sees a widow. She comes before this offering, and she brings two small copper coins, and she puts them both in there. Now, it's interesting that what Jesus says after that is that she gave more than anybody else. Well, in what way? Clearly, she didn't have more financially. 
probably even two small copper coins. I mean, I can't even like physically say you had more money than anybody else. In what sense did this widow lady give more than anyone else there? Jesus says that she gave of all that she had to live on. Others, they gave out their abundance, but she gave all that she had to live on. And I think that that's a picture of how we should be offering ourselves, how we should be offering our gifts. Whether we have this abundance of talent and gifting, or whether we just have just this tiny amount within us, we offer whatever we have up to the Lord that he might use it wherever and however he chooses. We offer all of ourselves that he might be glorified. We desire so much the common good that Christ would be exalted, that the body would build up, that we lay ourselves on this, this altar and give ourselves as this living sacrifice. We steward our gifts and our talents and our abilities and our resources and all that we are. We steward it well that God might be glorified. This is how we should use gifts. That is the more excellent way. Following the way of love means no matter your gift, no matter your role, no matter your function, no matter your ministry, you're offering it all up that the body might be built up. This is what Paul is getting them to, to desire. So do we really desire the common good? I mean, think about it. When we started talking about spiritual gifts, is, is this your, your context here? That what I'm desiring when we're studying these gifts is I desire to, to whatever it is, I want to know more so that I can build up the body. Or do you desire something for you? I think so often we have framed this conversation of spiritual gifts in the wrong way. Where it's all about you and what you receive and what you can do with it. Rather than it's all about the good that we can build up in the body and how we can exalt Jesus. That's how we should be talking about gifts. After all, he's the one who gave them. He's the one who's going to use them. So do we really desire the common good? Do we really desire to love God and build others up in love? And if that's true, if we really do want those things, then we should welcome this variety of gifts with this variety of people. And even, I think, this variety of expressions of Christianity all over the globe, not wanting them all to look the exact same. But may we accept all the gifts that God has given and practice them all in love. See, as believers, as we kind of close chapter 12, what we should do is we should seek to faithfully exercise our gifts. Whatever they may be, whatever your gift or gifts may be, we should exercise them faithfully and exercise our ministries and roles with all that we are as a living sacrifice unto our God, unto our head pastor who will lead us, guide us, arrange us, compose us as he desires so that the body might be built up all the while making sure that we're doing it in the right context, the context of love. This is what God desires for his church. This is for us, the body of Christ. Let's love and in love use our diverse gifts and ministries for the common good, stewarding them faithfully. You see, what we can do is we can offer all of our lives we can offer all of our gifts and all of our ministries because we have one who offered himself for us. We don't just conjure this up, this energy and desire to do all these things. We have one who we're responding to. and His name is Jesus. He gave of his life, poured it out so that this body might exist and might be built up. And Jesus wanted to be remembered by that very thing, his death. 
And so he puts something in place for the church, the body of Christ, to practice, to remind them of his sacrificial death, of his blood-bought forgiveness. He gave us the Lord's Supper. He took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which has been broken for you. Take it in remembrance of me. He took a cup, said, this is the cup of my blood of the covenant that's poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So when we look to this supper, we're remembering that Christ's body was broken for this body. We're remembering that Christ's body was broken for me, for you. We're remembering that he poured out his blood so that sinners could come to him without money and buy forgiveness, could have this purchased for them. He did this so that we might be reconciled to God. And so all who have placed their faith in Christ, we call you to this table boldly to come to this table because of what Jesus has done for you. But if you are not a believer, if you haven't fully trusted in Jesus, some of these things I'm talking about in your life like aren't adding up and don't make sense, will you say, don't take this meal, please? It's okay and fine with us if you just stay in your seat. But we want you to take Jesus. And he offers this out to you, this forgiveness of your sins that you can't get around any other way. And so we pay, ask and pray that you would take Christ. And if you don't know what that means or how that looks, but please come talk to us, we'd love to. But if you're a believer, this meal is for you. And so I've put this prayer up here. I'm going to give us a moment to just silently work through some prayers in our own lives to, to kind of take in the word of God and what God is doing in our hearts. And I've put this prayer for, for us. If you, if you don't know what to pray at this moment, if you don't know what to think, I'd, I'd encourage you, kind of read through this prayer. Meditate on some of these words, and we're going to say this together in just a minute. So I'd encourage you to pray before we come to the table. I encourage you, if you're a believer, if you're going to come and take this meal with us, to, to say this with me. If you're, if you're not a believer, I, we don't want you to pray this prayer along with us. This is, this is for believers as we come and take this meal. But if you're a believer, let's, let's say this prayer together as we come. We do not presume to come to this, your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. But you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. I encourage you to come and take as the Lord offers out to you his very mercy.